Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton City Council is going to wait a month before making a decision about repairs to Tim Horton Field. We'll tell you why in just a couple of seconds. City Council is also going to meet next month with the group behind the Commonwealth 2026 bid. Lou Fraporti, who is a spokesperson for that group, will join us. And some health scientists are urging the World Health Organization to label COVID-19 virus an airborne virus. What does that mean? We'll discuss. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council is going to wait about 30 days before making a decision in regard to repairs for Tim Horton Field. Yeah, I know I know what you're thinking. Tim Horton Field's not that old. How come there's so much work has to be done on it? That's a question I'm sure many people on City Council were asking yesterday. Uh, Brad Clark is the city councilor who's going to join us on the program right now, who uh, raised, some, I think, some very legitimate questions about this. Uh, Brad, welcome back. Good to have you on the show today. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure being with you. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to suggest that uh, the stadium, which was at, the co- at that time, of course, the Pan Am Stadium, it's since co- been called Tim Hortons Field, uh, has been a, a pain in the you-know-what to city councilor, I think would be a massive understatement, right from day one uh, with Infrastructure Ontario and a number of other things. Uh, but we seem to, and I think a lot of us anyway, Brad, thought, well, that's all behind us now because, you know, in 2018 you guys uh, reached a settlement uh, with Infrastructure Ontario and uh, Ontario Sports Solutions. Uh, but the problems didn't go away, did they? No, they didn't. Uh, the NGARD issues are still there. Uh, they've been repairing the NGARDs almost piecemeal, um, and staff are now saying, you know, we really should just be proactive and, and fix the end guards permanently, and the cost would be uh, $1.1 million. Uh, now, you're correct. All of this was a, was found out originally. I think it was a 2016 bill. It was a while ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, there was the um, subsequent statement of claim by the city against Infrastructure Ontario and the Tiger Cats. And then there was the settlement with Infrastructure Ontario in 2018. And so when this came up, the natural question for me is, well, why are we paying? If there was a settlement and the end guards were originally found to be faulty in 2016 and we're tr- still trying to fix the deficiency, then perhaps we should be having a conversation with Infrastructure Ontario respectfully and amicably and inform them of what's going on and work with them as opposed to getting into loggerheads with them. Well, and again, I, I know that you had to have some discussions behind closed doors because we're talking about contractual and possible legal uh, mm-hmm. actions that are happening in a situation like this. But maybe the, the, uh, in a much broader sense here, when you reach that deal as a city council with Infrastructure Ontario to, to basically make this whole problem go away, uh, do they are they under the assumption that they're free and clear now that this is your problem and, and, and they don't share any of the blame or the culpability? We really don't know, or let me rephrase that. I don't know. Um, I think that's a part of the conversation that they have to have with Infrastructure Ontario um, just to make sure that we're not putting $1.1 million on the backs of our taxpayers that we don't need to at this point. Because let's let's face it, I mean, this has been damaged goods since day one, yes. uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And and frankly, uh, you know, with all the other problems that they talked about, and we've had you and, and Councillor Ferguson and a number of other people, the mayor, on many many occasions, talking about some of the deficiencies in the stadium before uh, the Tiger Cats even set foot in there. Uh, but we didn't hear much talk about this particular aspect of it. But from what you're telling us now, this has been going on for quite some time. Yeah, the report. Uh, the public report indicated that it was found in 2016 
and and they were making what they called piecemeal repairs. So repairing the bolt, doing what they can. Um, but they've now looked at it more holistically and realized they really have to fix them right across the board and, and just get it done. And and it, although it's not a safety issue at the moment, it could become one in the future. So we want to make sure that uh, the facility is in, in top repair and we, we, we just have to do this. But we, we shouldn't rush into it without having a conversation with the province of Ontario. Uh, there was a settlement agreement, so we should have that discussion to find out whether or not this is party to that agreement, whether or not there's shared costs. We don't know. And so Councillor Ferguson, I think very prudently, offered to defer any decision until for 30 days so that we can have those conversations. From what I'm reading from the, the report you got yesterday, Brad, as, as you guys were discussing this, uh, this was a design problem, which kind of indicates to me anyway that uh, that this goes all the way back to Infrastructure Ontario and the guys that built this thing. I mean, I think Mr. D'Angelo told you guys yesterday uh, that they used the wrong anchoring devices for this thing. Well, that's that shouldn't be your problem. Yeah, they used the wrong anchoring devices, and in some cases they weren't anchored in deep enough into the concrete. Uh, so, I mean, it, there are clear issues here, and, and we don't want to litigate it in public, but we do want to have a conversation with Infrastructure Ontario and see if that we can come to an amicable, amicable um, resolution to, to the issue. And I think that's reasonable, um, and I think it's pragmatic. I, I look at it. I mean, mis- mistakes can happen. I mean, we all know that. And if I'm puttering around the house here, it's not uncommon for me to use the wrong screw, the wrong nail, or something like that. But these guys are supposed to know better. You're not an engineer, though. Well, darn right. Well, you know that, yeah. <laughs> so does my wife. Rebecca knows that, too. Put that hammer down before you really do some damage. <laughs> but, but these guys, these, these are supposed to be the experts. And, and this sort of stuff shouldn't be happening. Yeah, not on a. I agree with you completely. In, in all seriousness, not on a stadium of this size. It should not be happening, and all of these things should have been caught and repaired initially. And so, I, I have no doubt that our staff have done a great job. They found that the issues. They they got a plan to fix them, and so we're just taking this extra step to to minimize the financial impact to the taxpayers. Because what's happening right now is is this one point one million dollars. Uh, we don't have it sitting in a bank account somewhere waiting for the stadium, so we have to defer other uh, maintenance projects, other capital projects to find the money to offset this if we can't get some type of an agreement uh, with Infrastructure Ontario. So we don't want to go down that road. We we want to, to continue our, with our own capital projects that we've already approved and also get the stadium repaired. So I think that's why the discussion is important to have with Infrastructure Ontario. Well, yeah, because as you found out in, in your years in public service, uh, once you start doing that, there's a domino effect to a number of other projects that people are expecting to be to move forward. Uh, and it's usually not just one project that you have to borrow from. There's going to be a bunch of them here, which could defer maybe five or six different things that you wanted to get done in this, this construction session. Yes, that's correct. There's close to 10 different projects that oh, were go. highlighted by, by our staff. So you can see why there'd be some consternation from councillors. Um, and I think it's reasonable. I think they, I, th- I, th- I think we did the right thing by deferring it for 30 days, and let's have the discussion and see what we can come up with. 
is there a timing concern here? I mean, let's face it, the mm-hmm. stadium is sitting empty right now. There may not be any activity at all in Tim Horton Field this year. The CFL is not quite sure how they're going to roll out what, uh, what the, their truncated season is going to look like or actually where it's going to be played. Uh, that there may be two or three games there, but it means is it, right now you've got an opportunity to get this fixed and, and not mess anything up. I mean, you know, if this had been a regular year, uh, the Tiger Cats would be five weeks into the season right now, and you'd have a real problem having to shut this thing down to get it fixed, but that's, that's not going to be an issue now. It's not an issue if we can get it done in the next few months for sure. Um, we want to have it all completed before the 2021 season for sure. Um, and I guess the challenge is we really don't know, Bill, what's going to happen with this season. So we don't know whether or not there's going to be games at the stadium. We really don't know what's going to happen in September or in the fall. So ideally, in, in my mind, we we should be expediting the discussion with Infrastructure Ontario and then making the decision to to move forward with whatever repairs and, and get it done before we find ourselves in a situation where the public are now coming into the stadium and we're a little bit concerned about safety. Did you get any idea from staff as to how long the repairs might take? If you decide, okay, we're going to start it next Monday, how long would it take? Uh, they indicated that the 30-day deferral wouldn't cause uh, a problem for them, so let's see what happens. Is this the end of the, the, this long list that seems to have been developed ever since the stadium started? <laughs> I think so. I, I, I'm looking through all of the things that, that we've had deficiencies on, and, and, man, there's been a lot of deficiencies, as you know, and they've been well publicized in, in the media. Um, but this seems to be the last bunch that is of, of serious concern for our staff uh, to the point where they brought it to our attention. I, yeah, I don't want to go down the list. We, it's only a three-hour show, but I mean, there's a number, <laughs> a number of things that have gone on. And, and, to, and to your credit, the city has addressed each and every one of those. Some of them, with the help of Infrastructure Ontario, some of these guys that you've had to assume on your own. Uh, but there, there have been some concerns here, and it, it's it's a frustration, I think, for for you as a councillor and for us as taxpayers to see this sort of thing going on because we just want to put all this stuff behind us at this stage. Uh, but the cost is going to be interesting. Now, how do you how do you move forward on a situation like that? When you did the 30-day referral, uh, is it with instruction for staff to contact Infrastructure Ontario? What's the next step here? Yeah, so the staff will reach out to Infrastructure Ontario. Um, the intent was to bring them down to have them inspect and look at the, the end guards themselves so that they could see it with their own eyes as opposed to, to just uh, accepting our word for it and then have the discussion in terms of how does this relate to the the original settlement agreement, which was was reached amicably and respectfully between all parties, and everyone celebrated this back in 2018. Mm-hmm. So then if we had that settlement agreement and Angards were an issue back then, one would suppose that there's still that issue that we should be having this discussion about and, and, and try to resolve it. Uh, we just talked about the long list of some of the other deficiencies, and I, I'm just going through some of the staff notes there that they talked to you guys about. Uh, they actually found, they discovered this when they were actually fixing the, uh, the the light standards that were, of course, another one of the problems a few years ago. So uh, I, I guess, you know, thankfully they were doing a, 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 a much broader investigation of and, invest, and uh, evaluation as to what's going on here. This is this is an ongoing situation for the city staff, though. I mean, it's, it's a city asset now, of course. Well, you uh, recall the, the one speaker fell also. Yeah. And so yeah. when that fell, then the staff, of course, went in and inspected all of the speakers, all of the end guards, and that's when they started to see 
uh, minor cracks, the wrong bolts being used, they hadn't been anchored properly into the concrete, and that's what prompted the original litigation. But all of that we thought were was behind us um, until, of course, this report. Do you take no as an answer if they just come back and say, sorry, it's your problem now? Or, I mean, is there a possibility of legal action here if you're not getting any sense of cooperation? I would suggest that it would be unwise for me to speculate at this point. Okay, but it, it is an option, though, I would think, at this stage. Oh, always. And, and, like, and like, again, we're presupposing that they're going to say no. I mean, they might come back and say, yeah, we, we kind of messed up, yeah. <laughs> which is an understatement, of course. And litigation uh, is always an option. It's the last option that you want to pursue. But you've got to get this thing fixed. I mean, if, they, if these guys drag their heels on this, Brad, and, and say, well, you know, we'll get back to you in a little while, uh, there is a timing issue, as you say, because there's an, an opportunity to get this yeah, thing no, done we, this summer we, season. We cannot wait indefinitely. We need to re- get these, these repaired. I think it's reasonable and pragmatic to have that conversation with Infrastructure Ontario. Um, and if they don't come to the table, I'm assuming staff are going to come back and say, well, we still got to get them fixed because it is a safety issue. And then we're going to have to try and figure out how we deal with it after that. We may have to go to the politicians to have the discussion as opposed to uh, ministry staff. Well, that's always an option as well, isn't it? Correct. Simply reach out to the cabinet and to the premier. Certainly a lot easier than trying to go through the courts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, In a situation like that, uh, and and with this timing that's going on, uh, do you foresee a scenario where the city may have to do this and then maybe just send a bill to these guys and say, look, you got a pony up here? Again, because we're at the very preliminary stages, um, I, I would be speculating, and I don't, I, would, I wouldn't want to do anything uh, that would cause a problem for my my council colleagues or staff by by me speculating about an outcome that that upsets someone at Infrastructure Ontario. So it's better if we just have the private conversations and have the tour and, and inspection and and see what we can come up with rather than me presupposing what may or may not happen. Brad, Sorry, uh, I, I'm just trying to be cautious. No, I get that. I get that. Obviously, you, know, you want to make sure you don't want to step on anybody's toes at this stage anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about the, the discussion possibly with the province and with Infrastructure Ontario. Uh, there are a number of people that were involved in the, in the construction of this stadium. Uh, are, are these the only doors you're going to knock on, or do you look at somebody like Ontario Sports Solutions and some of the other people that were involved? And of course, there's the, the contractor, of course, from Europe. I don't even know where those guys are, probably hiding in the hills someplace. But uh, but do you try to pursue them as well to see to, if they can contribute to this? Uh, and, and again, it's, that's going to be interesting because, as I recall, it was Infrastructure Ontario that let out all the contracts. So yeah. those people were contracted to Infrastructure Ontario. Um, so we really should start with them first, and then we'll see what happens from there. But at the end of the day, we don't, we there's a number of us around the table that don't feel that the, the taxpayers should be putting a $1.1 million bill all on their own for deficiencies such as this from this stadium. So we have to have that conversation. Good luck with this, Brad. We'll certainly follow the story, and uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll be in touch again when we get some sort of an answer from uh, from the province. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Council Brad Clark. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are other infrastructure concerns the city's going to have to deal with. Uh, one of them uh, that uh, at some point they're going to have to uh, make a pretty hard decision on is uh, what's going to happen with the Commonwealth Games bid. Now, we've been talking about this for months on the program, and uh, City Council this week decided to uh, listen to uh, the revised 
application for the uh, the games to play here at Hamilton. Of course, the Hamilton 100 organization that uh, first approached the city about this uh, some time ago was uh, looking at the 2030 games, the 100th anniversary of the games. And we all know the, the historical reason for that, because the first ever games, uh, called the British Empire Games back in those days, was right here in Hamilton. So why not have the 100th anniversary? So that, that was the modus operandi then. But it has been changed and revised. And uh, bring us up to speed on what's going to be happening and uh, and what the uh, committee is going to talk to council about next month when they make their presentation. Uh, pleased to welcome Lou Forporty back to the, the show. Lou, of course, is a spokesperson for the Hamilton 100 team. Lou, very good to have you back in the program. How have you been the last little while? Uh, well, I'm a little I'm a little tired this morning, Bill, but I've been well. Thank you. Good, good to see. You. Let's talk a little bit about where we are now with this. And I, I know that uh, just before I had some time off there, I had Greg Maycheck on the program to give us a, a bit of an update on what's going on. Uh, there's there's a new direction, a new vision, and and I guess uh, you've had to do some some maneuvering with the, the bid itself. Let's bring us up to speed on what's happening. Sure. So as some of your um, listeners may know, yesterday there was a vote in council to essentially officially receive the pivot to 26 and to schedule a date for a proposal and, and presentation and discussion at council on August 10th, uh, at which time we hope to get further direction from, from city council as to their interest and hopefully either then or immediately after a path to support in principle. And for those that don't know, what support in principle simply means is that the city is interested in and carrying on with the discussion and negotiation with senior levels of government and the bid committee uh, over the terms in which it would consider hosting the game in 2026. And uh, what that uh, should be understood to mean is that there isn't any formal financial commitment when the city decides that. It really just begins the discussion and negotiation with other levels of government as to the terms under which the city would, uh, would consider participating. And so we hope to have some direction around that on the 10th. Um, and right now we have a variety of people in the UK here um, working very, very hard on the finalization of venue plans, budgets, costs, uh, and deliverables like affordable housing and a variety of other aspects of, of the games plan that we think are critical for the opportunity in 26. All right. Uh, from the first time we talked about this, Lou, uh, when I had you and PJ Mercanti in studio uh, back in the days when we were still doing the show from in studio, it seems like a thousand years ago now, uh, you know the criticism you heard from some of the councillors, and I heard it again from a couple of the people around the council table uh, virtually, of course, yesterday, uh, was, look, we just can't afford to do this right now. How do you address that? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say uh, certainly those who feel that way is that they have really no idea at this point what it is that's being proposed. They're making assumptions about what it might mean in terms of cost uh, and dividend and return, uh, and I think it's very premature to do that. You'll recall, Bill, that uh, we were interested in 2030 in part because of the sentimentality and nostalgia over a return to Hamilton 100 years later. And our consideration of, the, of a pivot to 26, which we didn't initiate, but that the Federation raised with us, was intended to be entirely about um, supporting pandemic relief at a time of great economic devastation in, in the region. And as a consequence of their flexibility in what it is that they were offering us, uh, we we are on a path to a reduced games in terms of size. Uh, we're looking to use resources that the city or region currently has. Um, we're looking on a, a path to the funding uh, of the games where we're clearly going to be looking to senior levels of government who have made commitments as part of their budgeting towards sport and tourism that would not otherwise be directed to Hamilton in the absence of the games. And, of course, we're looking to the private sector to help 
fill in the gap. And we know, even from the 2030 proposal, which is roughly 30 to 35% larger in terms of projected cost, that there is a significant return on that kind of investment uh, by every measure in, in the region. And so to those who say we can't afford it, without knowing exactly what the return on the investment is, um, it's really premature to say that. I think most will find when we put this forward that we can't afford not to do it, given the issues that this community is facing. Now, I want to talk about some of the folks that have come to the table, not just financially, but otherwise in a couple of seconds. But we've done some research on this uh, because we've been involved, of course, in Commonwealth game bids in the past. Uh, one we just missed out on, the other uh, not so lucky. But uh, this one looks like is I, I know one councillor said, well, it's being handed to us because nobody else wants it, which I think is a rather uh, crass way of looking at this. I mean, you are working hand-in-hand uh, hand with the, the committee, the international committee on this, aren't you? Yes, there's so much that's unusual about this opportunity that differentiates it from anything the, the city has been through before. Uh, one is that we are working in close partnership with the Federation and Commonwealth Sport Canada, including this call this morning, but these are ongoing every day in the preparation of the bid. Everybody uh, is incredibly constructive, being flexible, creative around to do, how to do this in a way that makes sense for the city. This, as you know, is not the normal process. Normally, you create a bid and, and deliver it for consideration and judgment internationally, and the requirements are those that make sense for that governing body. Here, we're looking to create and craft a, a games that make sense for Hamilton in every way. It's not a luxury that communities generally have. We're very fortunate to have it, and that's a key part of, uh, a part of this process. Um, and they've given us a window within which to do this, and, and that window isn't endless, obviously, um, but it's been very generous of them, and they've been very supportive and helpful. And we expect to have a variety of Commonwealth leaders um, being made available to this community over the next few weeks. I'm in discussions right now to have mayors of cities that have run the games in the past in the Gold Coast, Glasgow, to be made available to council in this community to discuss their experience with the games. And that's part of the outreach that we hope to roll out that will help educate the community and council about the opportunity. International games, uh, especially in the last little while, I guess, Lou, though, have, have developed, in many people's minds anyway, a bad reputation. You know, they're money pits. They never make money, even though the promise is always there that it's going to. But in the research that I've done, and I've done a fair bit of work on this over the last number of years, especially since uh, you and I started talking about this particular bid, the Commonwealth Games is a, is a bit of a different animal. They tend to actually deliver on a lot of the, the, the promises that they make vis-a-vis legacy projects, etc. cetera. Uh, so that idea about bringing some of the mayors that have hosted the games in the past on side to talk about their experience, I think, would be an eye-opening experience for a lot of people in this community. That's a great point, and I thank you for raising it. And, and here's uh, something that uh, Bear is mentioning here. You know, obviously there was mention made at Council of the fact that there has been insufficient community outreach and education around this, and we agree completely. The challenge has been one that we've been asked to pivot and compress into the span of a few weeks or months a process that can take a year or more, and we're a voluntary committee without staff or budget. The constraints on our time and resources in order to do that have been very, very significant, and folks have worked incredibly hard to try to get that done recognizing that now at this point as a result of council's vote yesterday it's incumbent upon us to communicate really widely as to that specific issue and others and and i've i've heard this and most of it comes from a position of ignorance you're right to say that some international sporting events have been boondoggles certainly the experience with montreal is familiar to all canadians but the commonwealth games experience given its reduced size 
um, has not been an event that has had a, a similar outcome. And, and we can look back to Edmonton or Victoria, and we hope to connect around those games, which profoundly changed those communities, were very profitable, with significant legacies. And because we have the partnership of the Federation in building this strategy with that in mind, we're incredibly confident that that same outcome will prevail here. And of course, at a time right now for our community where thousands of jobs and that magnitude of investment would make a huge difference in our city. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, and that, of course, is, is COVID-19, is the pandemic. And I know a couple of counselors expressed some concern about that, uh, suggesting that, the, you know, the fact that COVID is around uh, is, is actually going to make these games uh, less of a success just by definition. Uh, we're talking six years out, and I'm not suggesting that, hey, everything's going to be fine, we're going to get a vaccine, and we're all going to live happily ever after. Uh, you know, the idea of pandemics, and especially in international pandemics, uh, is something that we have to look at as, as, as a reality here. But I'm not so sure that COVID is going to be as much of a factor six years out as it might be right now, for instance. Well, look, I would say this. If COVID is such a factor six years from now, the problems facing our economy in the city will be much more significant than the Commonwealth Games. We, we don't expect that to be the case. And if you're running a business, you have to make plans over a period of several years with an expectation uh, that, that you're going to generate a return. Um, I understand that that concern has been has been expressed, but here we're talking about expenses that uh, would be incurred a few years from now, mostly, um, and an event that's fully six years away. And we, we can't afford not to be planning strategically around investments of that type years in advance. To say that, that COVID prevents us from doing that would mean that, that, that COVID would prevent us from assessing as a region investments uh, over a span of years that are critical to the community. This isn't going to be a distraction. It's going to be a significant investment. And I'd say one more thing on that count, Bill. Um, what we're going to do, and having solicited PricewaterhouseCoopers to prepare an economic analysis of this, and, and we've uh, reached out to the city already, is we will be submitting uh, a report and making contributions to the mayor's economic task force on, on pandemic recovery. Obviously, we see this as something that could be maybe the most significant driver of economic recovery in this region that would be governed by the task force and we're looking forward to making that presentation and to explain and answer some of the questions that we've just raised let's let's talk about investments in this and the people that are going to come to the table i know that you as you've talked about you've had discussions with the federal and provincial governments who have traditionally uh partnered with whatever city is hosting a games whether it's the olympics in winnipeg and uh, vancouver years ago or uh, other games that have taken place here or even international hockey tournaments i mean there's a, a long list of things that the governments will have money for and they will kick in but what's impressed me an awful lot, Lou, is uh, the private sector investment that uh, you're not only asking for, but have received. I know Steve Milton in the spec last week reported that you, there was an anonymous donor who's willing to pony up an awful lot of money uh, in support of this bid. And that's not the only one. Uh, they always talk. Anytime there's anybody comes forward with a bid, they said, yeah, we're going to try to get private sector investment. It doesn't always happen. But you guys have, have already started that and with some success already. Yeah, and that's going to be a key deliverable in, in this project, Bill, in part because we've committed to that and in part because I think it's it's going to be necessary for this to get off the ground. It's also a way of making very clear to all levels of government that their investments will yield a more significant dividend than would otherwise be the case, and that's, and that's critical to the community. Look, we have a variety of business interests in a bid here, obviously, that's private sector generated that see this as a way of catalyzing uh, a significant amount of further or other investments in the region. These games bring so much with them that the value of 
property and to business interests and, and, and of development opportunities in the region is greatly increased if the games proceed. Enhancements to transportation infrastructure, sport and community facilities, all of these things make for a more vibrant city, more attractive place for an investment. And business interests who are already here in this region see that that commitment of private sector money in the project will yield a much more significant return for them in all of their business interests. And so there's a, a virtuous circle in that that we hope to get moving uh, with the games. And we're doing something quite innovative and in starting in advance of the actual holding of the games. Some councillors are going to come back at you, as, as they have when we've had discussions with them about uh, the bid, and especially go, even going back to your initial bid on this stuff too, Lou, that uh, they're concerned that councils and city taxpayers are going to get stuck holding the bag. There's always going to be cost overruns, they, they assume anyway. Uh, and uh, as the city, you know, where they're going to get stuck. All these people that are on side now uh, may or may not be around when we start talking about, okay, where's the rest of the money going to come from if there are some concerns about this sort of thing. How do you address that? I know it's early days yet when it comes to, to the finances about this, and you're not making a commitment or asking for a commitment from the city on this right now, but eventually they're going to have to get some questions answered about what the city's commitment is going to be both before, during, and after the games. Sure. Uh, and that's, of course, critical, and it's their obligation to do that. And we, we fully understand that the, the taxpayers in the city of Hamilton expect that they will do that. But the conversation extends well beyond just the question of cost. Uh, it also centers on the question of what the anticipated return is. Uh, and it's a complicated question that we're working through right now. So, for example, the city has a variety of commitments for capital projects over the years and operational uh, funding that extends over several years that it cannot meet, in part because of the pandemic, in part because of budget problems before. Um, part of the games deliverable is to provide resources and money, and in part some of the private sector contributions that can permit the city to offload some of its existing financial commitments that the taxpayers have to support onto the games and private sector partners. The assessment of what those budget line items are uh, and where it is that either the private sector gains revenue from sponsorship and ticket sales or senior levels of government can step in to direct resources in support of existing city commitments is something that we hope to have a, a fairly rigorous analysis around and to have as part of this conversation. On balance, we're very confident that the games will yield very, very significant benefit to taxpayers in this region apart from the infrastructure that it needs as a legacy. Well, and, you know, we've just yesterday on the program talked about the fact that, uh, you know, Ontario mayors are asking the, the feds and provincial governments for, for recovery money for things like affordable housing. You know, city Hamilton, of course, has a problem with affordable housing. Uh, it's amazing how, well, the money's not available for that, but the government kicks in money for something like a Commonwealth bid. Well, one of the, the net benefits of that, of course, is, is the housing that's going to be constructed for the games themselves uh, is turned over to the city after that. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a back doorway of getting the very thing that they've been asking for right now is money for infrastructure and, and things like affordable housing. That's, that's really part of the package here, isn't it? Right, but, but appreciate that. I think there's a good deal of, of, of ignorance around how it is that, that, that senior levels of government budget and for what. It isn't as if a commitment to fund the games necessarily means that money not otherwise available in the city would be diverted to the Commonwealth Games bid. The reality is that all levels of government have significant existing mandates, ministries, and bureaucracies around tourism and sport in which there are budget items. If the monies in, in those budgets are not deployed in Hamilton, they're deployed someplace else. What the Commonwealth Games does then is permit those levels of government to be able to direct the funding. They exist to do that to our community rather than another community for another event. 
as a way of, of, of pro- providing this community much more at the end of the day in terms of, of its resources. So on balance, we see this as really materially adding to the investments by senior levels of government uh, in our region. And of course, the private sector partners that are coming in, and there are a lot of them that are coming in now interested in participating in some way in this project, would not otherwise be making this investment in Hamilton were it not for the games. So it's a magnet for investment that will yield return financially and otherwise for a long time. Got about a minute left, but I wanted to cover off one more thing, if I could, Lou. Uh, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that the international group has given you a window of opportunity. Uh, when's that window going to close? I mean, is there a timing concern here? Yeah, well, there is, of course, and, and they can hardly be blamed for this. But in the letter that the Federation has sent to all levels of government, which is available uh, on our website, they made very clear that that window of exclusivity extends into September. Um, it's not to say that they might not consider extending it, depending upon where we are. But it is finite, and we feel that we can work within that envelope, that we can get to an agreement in principle uh, of support from the city uh, in that time frame, understanding that it is not a final commitment. And the city, at a later date, as the negotiation process unfolds, can say, well, um, you know, we're not in it any further, but we're confident that we'll be able to at least get it to that point within the time window that they've given us. Uh, we'll be following this story with great interest, obviously, and waiting for the the presentation you guys are going to put forth in a couple of weeks with uh, City Council. Uh, Lou, as always, thank you so much for your time and for uh, your great effort, you and everybody on the committee. As you mentioned, uh, this is a volunteer committee. You guys all have day jobs, uh, and you're trying to make a living and trying to do this at the same time. Uh, and it's it's a difficult enterprise, of course, and uh, we're hoping uh, we're hoping that, uh, that there's a happy ending to this. Let's stay in touch over the next little while, okay? Bill, thank you, and we'll be making a lot more information available to the community in the coming days, and we're inviting people to provide their feedback or offer to help. It's a community It's a community project. You betcha. Thanks again, Lou. Okay, Lou for 40, spokesperson for the Hamilton 100 team. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The serious concern that everybody's got is the pandemic. Uh, we are now, of course, into July, and... Uh, well, we didn't think we'd be here. At least a lot of us didn't think that uh, we'd still be talking about COVID to the degree that we are. And uh, that's because uh, there were some people that thought, well, when the warm weather comes along, it's going to go away. It didn't. Uh, that uh, there's going to be a, a vaccine. There isn't. Not for a while, anyway, we're told, if at all. And on and on it goes. Now we are finding that a number of health experts are now petitioning the World Health Organization to classify COVID-19 as an airborne virus. Now, what does that mean and what are the implications? Well, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Rodney Rohde, who is a professor and chair in clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professionals at uh, Texas State University. Uh, Dr. Rohde, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the program today. Good morning, Bill. It's always great to be back on the show. I, it's interesting you were talking about the effect on sports. I've been doing mm-hmm. some conversations about that with, with others as well, so that's an interesting topic you were talking about. Well, I'd like to get your feedback and your opinion on that as well because of some of the concerns that are being raised, and that probably ties right in to, uh, to what's happening with the, the designation of airborne and what the implications of that are. But before we get to any of that, I, I haven't talked to you for a few weeks now, Doctor. What is going on in Texas? I mean, you know, we, we talked about, well, the the... the, the some people are categorizing this as a second wave. I, I saw Dr. Fauci on uh, CNN again like yesterday. Uh, he's looking awfully frustrated uh, because he just doesn't seem to think that people are, are getting the message that he and you and others have been talking about for the last four months now. Right. I, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, first of all, let's be clear. It's, it's really not a second wave yet. That's still mm-hmm. to be seen down the road. That usually happens once the baseline falls out due to seasonality or something like that. 
what we're seeing is a continued surge of the first wave in actuality. And in Texas, you might remember, we kind of came out of our shelter in place right around as we were leading into Memorial Day. And so many people believe and feel, including myself, that when that occurred, not only because we came out of it, but that when we did so, we didn't really have a mandate and some strong um, kind of rules in place for face masking and distancing and things like that. So I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, we kind of beat this down and we're, we're ahead of it and we're going to be fine, even though many of us in public health and health care were screaming for stronger mandates um, when the governor and, and the president and others in different states kind of started relaxing that. So here in Texas, you can see what's going on. We're surging uh, very dangerously now into areas that are pushing our hospitals uh, into what we predicted months ago if, if we don't stay on top of this. I think I read today another kind of crazy fact that Florida in the past eight days is now more cases in the last eight days than the entire state of Louisiana. That that makes me stop and take pause for a moment. I mean, we're really getting into a um, kind of a wildfire, a wildfire scenario that many of us talked about early on. We We kind of discussed this pandemic in terms of kind of a smoldering ember, mm-hmm. and those, 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 uh, those embers have been really fanned into flames at this point in the United States. Well, I think one of the things that bothered uh, an awful lot of people and, and probably had a, an adverse effect on what's going on there, Doctor, was it became political. I mean, we're talking about a virus here, but it became political to mask or not to mask, you know, to social distance or not to social distance. You know, what about my rights, et cetera? But even some of the staunchest uh, supporters that said, look, everybody should be allowed to do what they want, including the Texas governor, are now on side. Right. It's, it's, we have to shut things down now. We're going to start wearing masks and make them mandatory. It's a, it, it's as if they, they had a, a come-to-the-light moment here and understand, hey, this is pretty serious. Right. I mean, and let's be clear. I, I'm I'm applauding the governor of Texas for doing what he did. It Me took too, a lot yeah. of political courage. I mean, we are definitely a red state, and it took a ton of courage for him to do that. He's taking a beating. But I do applaud him and his staff for doing this. I just hope, as I've discussed on your show prior, you know, once that horse is out of the barn, it's it's going to be a lot more difficult now. It's going to take weeks, if not, you know, a month or more to tamp this curve back down, if we can do it. Once you get to such, um, you know, logarithmic spread of this, it's exponential now, it, it makes it even more difficult to do contact tracing and to kind of get people to adhere to quarantine and, and you know, all those things we were doing early on that we worked so hard for. Um, so, you know, not to be super critical, but, you know, many of us predicted that this type of thing could happen, not just with this respiratory virus, but with anything when you had no herd immunity in the population. In the early days, uh, you and I had discussions about the virus itself, and you, and and your, your point's well taken. I mean, we didn't know a whole lot about it. We were learning almost on a daily basis about how to treat it, certainly, uh, but what we were actually dealing with. And and I more than one individual uh, during those conversations, doctor, would say, well, it's, at least it's not an airborne virus. I mean, you know, if you keep your hands washed right. and all this sort of thing. Well, now uh, a number of your uh, compatriots down there are suggesting to the World Health Organization that, yeah, it is airborne. What, what, what does that entail? What are the implications? of that yeah i think this is a this is a great topic to bring up i mean first of all um this this uh particular thing that's going on that you mentioned i think it came out a few days ago about i don't know a couple of hundred health experts kind of urged the who and Mm -hmm. even the cdc to kind of start considering sars cov2 as a possible being transmitted airborne route 
just so your audience understands, I mean, airborne in a scientific way is defined a little differently than respiratory droplets. Respiratory droplets are the heavier particles that come out of your mouth or nose when you're coughing, singing, speaking, coughing, whatever you're doing. Aerosolization of those particles is an entirely different matter. Uh, sometimes one way to think about this is an aerosol is something that we definitely know is created when you do some type of like surgical procedure where you might be using a instrument uh, in a in a body fluid or something like that. So there is a difference. It's basically a finer particle, a much smaller particle. We know respiratory droplets fall within about a meter or two, so up to six feet. But uh, we have shown, at least in scientific studies, uh, that sometimes in certain situations those particles can move as far as 9, 12, 15 feet. Um, so, again, I don't think there's enough evidence at the moment to say that this virus is primarily transmitted through airborne, but it's certainly a concern uh, with respect to the kind of rapid and ramped up uh, cases that we're seeing. But you have to keep that in perspective also with everything we're not doing, which we just talked about recently. So I think once we have those studies in place, we can certainly address it. But like many of my colleagues, there's nothing wrong with, uh, basically saying it's it's close to being airborne and we need to do everything we can with respect to give, getting even further apart and definitely mandating those masks. But to that point, though, doctor, does that necessarily mean there has to be a reevaluation of, of, of the, the protocol that, that you and others have established about face masks, about physical distancing and things of this nature? I mean, sure. I, I, mean, I would suggest again, that, that's, that those are still going to be in play, aren't they? And maybe, maybe even more so now because of the, the possibility of the airborne virus. Right. I mean, absolutely, they have to be in play as they stand. But I think what WHO and CDC must now consider as they gather data and evidence around this, if 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 it is truly airborne, and even if it's just 10% airborne, for example, and that's not typically what we say, but let's say it's somewhat airborne in nature, then you're going to have to look at some of the policies and guidelines around social distancing where you might have to increase that up to 15 or 20 feet. You might have to start looking at canceling more inside activities, uh, especially if you don't have a way to uh, show that you are changing the the turnover of air in those areas. So really you need to start looking at airflow management within enclosed structures. And while outside is always the best, and it still would be, you would even have to really think about, you know, again, these larger crowds or these larger venues where you're, you've got so many hosts, so many people standing within a few feet of each other that it gives that aerosolization an opportunity to move across a, a larger geographic area. Doctor, so, yeah, when we it would looking... be a major headache. <laughs> well, exactly. Listen, we've got an airline up here, uh, one of the, the Canadian airlines, uh, that just announced that they're going to uh, let go of the social distancing and just pack the airplanes again. I thought this is like right. a petri dish for the disease. I mean, people just don't seem to understand how serious this is. Yeah, I again, I think it's that that balance we're seeing with economics and and the virus, and it's really frustrating for people. I mean, you know, I would hate to be a CEO of an airline right now. I can't imagine what they're dealing with. And we've seen it here in the U.S. too, where we're seeing some airlines uh, stop using that empty middle seat, for example, which mm -hmm. is, is really minimal protection. Let's, let's face it, those things yeah. are packed even if you do have an empty seat. So, again, I think that, that face mask use and, and looking into ways to turn over that air 
more often and and really maybe keeping those empty seats there possible. But I think we're climbing an uphill battle when you start fighting those economic factors. How do places like Texas and Florida and, and well, Arizona, like, frankly, if we look mm-hmm. at some of the numbers there, how we always talk about flattening the curve. And, and before we can flatten it, obviously, we have to slow this, the growth of this. Uh, are, are, is is the, the easiest way to do that, if there is such a thing as an easy way here, is to be more strict with some of the the, the, the things, the, the face masking, making them mandatory, the things of this nature, as some other jurisdictions have done. I think one of the great oddities, and I think you mentioned this uh, the last time you and I talked, uh, one of the worst scenarios we saw in early days was what happened in Italy, and we thought, oh, my God, that's tragic. But they had one of the best recoveries, too, once they finally decided, okay, this is what we're going to do, and you're all going to do it. Uh, and and we haven't really adopted that in North America to the same extent. We're not as fervent about being, you know, adamant about what we have to do and, and enforcing what we have to do. Yes, sir. I mean, you just nailed it on the head. I mean, what what many of my colleagues and I continue to state, and this is not a popular answer, is that it is it's not impossible. In fact, it, it drives me crazy when I see things like, well, we're just going to have to live with this virus and have to deal with. We have done this before. There is a way to do it. The problem with this is that it is hard work. It, there is no easy way around it. And one of the ways we start that is by having a national strategy, if not a global strategy, that we implement for you know better testing, better testing capacity. And then you must have a strict uh, plan around tracing and contact tracing to get people to to deal with that issue if they're positive or suspicious of being positive. And you implement that across, you know, the, the population. And, and what you hope happens, and I continue to say, is that, the, is that the majority of the population will come on board with this public health initiative to kind of approach it just like we have in the past. You know, it took a while for us to get on board with HIV and how that truly played out and how we had to get smarter about sex education and how we handle those sorts of things. And, and hopefully it won't take you know, a decade for us to kind of figure that out with COVID. We we can do it, but it will take some hard work and it will take some time. And now it may take more time. The longer we put this off, the more difficult it is to kind of put this fire back out. I, I think, I don't necessarily think we took things for granted. Uh, I think we, we got a little lax, of course, in, in some of the things that we did when we started to see the numbers go down. But two of the things that I think that have really, I think, befuddled an awful lot of people are first the, the whole concept of asymptomatic, and and secondly about the incubation period. You know, we were told, well, it's probably about 14 days, and I can remember the Florida governor after the Memorial Day weekend said, "See, you guys said it was going to spike, and it didn't. I, I, that was on the 15th right. day. Three days later, boom! You know, the the, the top right. got blown off here. So maybe there has to be a discussion about that. But I mean, we 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 get complacent and say, well, I passed that we 14 do. days, so I guess I don't have it. We do. Not only do we get complacent. But I think I've mentioned this on your show, if not others before. Uh, we like to think in black and white, you know, when mm-hmm. it comes to certain things. But I will continue to say, you know, science and especially viruses don't don't care about black and white. And so when when we say things like two to fourteen days, if you read the kind of the fine print of that, or if you look at the data, it's really a range between you know maybe a negative one or a negative two day all the way out to 18 or 21 days. So we're always kind of reporting means and medians and things like that, and science loves to do that. But we really need to err on the side of being conservative, and, and maybe we do need to say three weeks, you know. And and it's really difficult on that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic side. That's really where it gets 
um, kind of dangerous because, you know, we're, we're probably going to miss some of that up front because we just don't know if people are infectious uh, in, the, in that window, that early window. And so we certainly need to make sure we're closing the window on the backside to kind of help with that, that window on the front. We uh, began the conversation talking about the, the impact this is going to have on sports. Uh, baseball players, uh, well, they're going to training camp, such as it is. Uh, are you are you comfortable, Doctor, with 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 the protocol that's being established here of of, of basically hiving the players off? And, and of course, there's going to be nobody in the stadium uh, as these games are played. But uh, there's still a major concern about safety of the athletes themselves. And uh, as we've talked about, a number of ball players, David Price comes to mind, and a few others have said, uh, "Thanks, but no thanks. I'm not playing this year." Right. I, I, right I'd be I'd be a little nervous about going onto the playing field in this situation. What are your thoughts I, on I, that? I would, I would be too. In fact, on one of the shows I was doing uh, in the past couple of months, I've been talking to a the sports slaw show, which is Lomas Brown, a former Detroit Lion yeah. professional player, and Deb Snyder, who's a lawyer and a professor. So they have this kind of cool show that they do on Facebook Live, and this has been their entire topic for you know months now. And it's really interesting to talk to a professional athlete and, and kind of understanding questions around, you know, how does a player – you know, physically um, ramp up when they know that someone might have an infection or, or, or anything else. You know, does it does it impede your performance? I mean, some really interesting questions. And then, of course, you can empty the stadium, but then you worry about, you know, the locker room and the meeting rooms. And most of the coaches and many of the support staff are sometimes older than the players. So you do have risk factors with mm-hmm. that. Um, we now know that people of color are about four times as likely to deal with this. So, you know, depending on the population, the demographic you're looking at, there may be some higher concerns. And then, you know, the question of what if, and really not what if, but probably, if you look at kind of typical statistics, if you're talking about, for example, 32 NFL teams and they carry, you know, a roster of 50, and but they probably have a support, a support staff of 30 to 50 more and, I mean, if you start doing the numbers, we will have what well, we already know with positive cases, even in practices that they're starting. Yeah. What happens if your star quarterback, or even if it's not a star, just a utility player, what if someone dies? You know, how does how does how did the professional leagues deal with that? I mean, is do we get into legal cases because we? Oh, you can bet in? that. Will they yeah. make Will they make them sign contracts? You know. With, with waivers, and then what about the NCAA? What about the student athlete that's not a professional contract? I mean, there are so many um, kind of scenarios that cross my mind, and I am a sports lover. I cannot wait to get these get these things going again. But but to answer your question, I think we really need to be cautious, and and we might need to start looking at that in terms of you know, are we ready right now? Maybe we need to put a season off like we did during, you know, certain world wars or something like that. Yeah, you know, it, it seems to be the, it, it the more practical thing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we is. all love it, but it is just a game, and maybe people's lives should be put a little higher priority right now. Doctor, always uh, interesting to talk with you, reassuring in many ways to, to get a proper perspective on things. Thanks, as always, for the time, Dr. Rohde. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon, probably. You betcha. Dr. Rodney Rohde from, uh, of course, uh, Texas State University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.
so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review.